Thanks for joining me for the, I would call it, middle section of Mark chapter 1. And if you were able to catch the first episode last week, the introduction and the first 13 verses of this chapter, then you know I'm doing something very different this year with the Anchor Fellowship and here on the podcast. Instead of teaching through these sections of Mark's gospel, in fact, I'm going to take a literary approach, a descriptive, kind of novelistic approach where I go inside of what's being said by John Mark and bring it out imaginatively, almost in an encountering it for yourself sort of way. So it's going to be a little different. And I want to dive in today with just a little introduction to where we're going, again, imaginatively, and then we'll be into the text itself. So we're going to be in Mark 1, 14 through 28. Now, within the same span of time, two very different things are happening. Uh, One seemingly big, filled with intrigue, hatred, the violence of man, the other seemingly small, and thus mostly unnoticed. First, the big one. On another of those days, when crowds by the thousands are covering both banks of the River Jordan, standing in the hot sun, listening to the words of John the Baptist, feeling in their hearts the coming of the kingdom of heaven, suddenly officers of the palace arrive. They are the chosen men of the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. They arrive by foot. They're coming heralded by the distant and yet nearing sound of their armor, spears, swords clanging against the desert stillness. The sunlight gleams on their burnished helmets. The crowd steps aside in worry and fear. The soldiers march all the way down to the water's edge. You are under arrest, they shout at the man standing in the middle of the river. Under what charge? He calls back. You know it matters very little, they answer. Now come. The crowd then stands in shock, in silent, gaping, watching shock, as John the Baptist wades toward the riverbank, gives himself up. The soldiers are rougher than they need to be. John has put up no struggle at all. And as the people watch him led away, led up the trail by the soldiers, out past the tree line, down the valley, as he disappears with them over the next rise, they are aware that they have witnessed something big, something that was happening, and now is over. They return to Jerusalem and the surrounding districts, filled with regret. But What of the other thing, the seemingly small, mostly unnoticed happening, happening in the same span of time as this other? Well, listen. It was after John's arrest that Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time has come at last. The kingdom of God has arrived. You must change your hearts and minds and believe the good news. Which... As precipitous as it sounds to us, as earth-shatteringly, ringingly as it rings in our ear over the centuries, actually went more like this. It was a warm Wednesday afternoon. Men, women, and children were going about their mundane little lives. Fathers were working in their workshops, thinking of dinner. Mothers were baking bread, 
thinking of their children. Those children were sitting in school thinking of going swimming. Life was passing by, though none of them seemed to notice. When, from the south, walking steadily up the sea view road through the low trees, walked a man that none of these people had ever seen before. He walked with a stride that consumed the intervening distances, his head held high, his eyes taking in everything around him, possessing it. He smiled at every traveler who happened to pass by. These, these would all look back over their shoulders to give him a second look. And finally, as if fated to stop in this place, this little boring town along the water's edge, he stopped. He was standing in the only intersection of the only two streets of the town. The men, women, and children around him were going about their lives unthinkingly. The man looked around, taking it all in. Then, clearing his throat and speaking as if to everyone, and yet to no one in particular, the man begins to proclaim the arrival of an earth-conquering kingdom. The time has come at last. The kingdom of God has arrived. You must change your hearts and minds and believe the good news. The people on the two intersecting streets look at him perplexed. Some look away. Some are instantly interested in this singular message. But most, most, go back to doing exactly what they were doing before. So yes, two events on two different days in two locations within the same span of time, one seemingly big, the other seemingly small. One of those men imprisoned now, the other unnoticed, unknown. But the kingdom of God has arrived. Now, as he walked along the shore of the Lake of Galilee, he saw two fishermen, Simon and his brother Andrew, casting their nets into the water. They had been out all night, seining for fish between their boat and another, watching the moon and starlight rise, crest, and then die away. The sunlight over the eastern hills of the sea rose to them unwelcome. They hadn't caught a single fish all night, not one. They are standing now with their backs to the town, up to their ankles in the water, having cleaned their nets and now casting them into the shadows to rinse them. Over the sound of the morning windswell, they hear approaching steps. Crunch, crunch, crunch. They turn back. Watching them is a man they both have met briefly. Jesus, the cousin of the Baptist, the one from Nazareth. He is standing up the gravelly beach a few steps, his arms crossed, just watching the way they cast the nets in the morning light. Come and follow me, and I will teach you to catch men, he cried. His voice ripples out and then dies out over the waters. At once, they dropped their nets and followed him. Their internal impulse was identical. Andrew, the first to meet the man, the one who heard the Baptist say, look, the Lamb of God, is already entirely convinced that this man is the Messiah. 
In fact, that's what he already said to his brother Simon. And Simon, the one this man immediately and forever renamed Simon Peter, he is as snared by the presence of Jesus as a passing school of fish. This trio begins walking up the beach together. Then he went a little further along the shore and saw James, the son of Zebedee, aboard a boat with his brother John, overhauling their nets. These two, along with their father, have been partners to those other brothers. The four boys had all grown up together. Uh, James and Andrew, kind of the level-headed, reasonable pair of the four, Peter the wild man, and John, the perennial little brother. Just a moment ago, James and John had been watching that scene play out down the beach and were wondering what the approach of their friends with Jesus might mean. And just as with the other two, Jesus stops, watches, waits. James and John regard him wonderingly. Then, at once, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and went off after him. Andrew, the first to proclaim Jesus as Messiah. James, the first of the apostles who will eventually die for him. Peter, the one whose words will shape this very gospel. And John, who will be the last to die of the first generation. The four of them begin their walk along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, heading south, heading they know not where. The sound of the lakeshore waves will be the accompaniment to their first fumbling attempts to get to know the heart and mind of their God incarnate. He himself delights with a loud, booming laughter at the fellowship of his four first friends. He has chosen each of them with great purpose. They arrived at Capernaum, and on the Sabbath day, Jesus walked straight into the synagogue. A scene almost precisely like our modern version of church, where mothers and fathers, up early, eventually waking their children, have now dragged those children against their whines of, but it's boring, where those children sit in upright, uncomfortable seats and wish that God wouldn't mind being worshipped outside by the sea under the cloudless sky, where leaders go through the motions that have been gone through unendingly for century after century, sensing the lifelessness but afraid of any potential, potentially radical change, where the silent stillness is as thick as the religiosity of the room, where everything that's about to happen is explainable, measurable, known beforehand. It's into that sort of setting, physical space, spiritual atmosphere that Jesus entered and began teaching. He didn't even take a seat in the crowd first. He strode up the outside aisle on the men's side of the synagogue, nodded to the leader, and then sat down upon the teacher's seat. The whole congregation noticed his movements perked up. This was something they'd never seen before. And as he opened his mouth, his eyes smiling, though his look was deadly serious, as he began to pronounce the first of his sentences to his first gathered crowd, he spoke to them of a kingdom of the Spirit of God, of God the Father, of love, and of the inextricability of the love of God from men. 
He spoke as if the law, the prophets, the past, the ways of the world, the ways of God were all completely known, deciphered by him. He spoke of it all first-handedly, naturally. He spoke in ways, again, they'd never heard before. And so they were amazed at his way of teaching, for he taught with the ring of authority, quite unlike the scribes. Then, all at once, a man in the grip of an evil spirit appeared in the synagogue shouting out, What have you got to do with us, Jesus from Nazareth? Have you come to kill us? I know who you are. You're God's Holy One. As always, it was the children who had seen this coming first. The back door had opened just a crack, and they noticed. They cast those little furtive glances over their shoulder to see. They saw that man from the mountains coming in. This man from the mountains was a local man who'd grown up here, gone to this synagogue, lived amongst them, shopped in their market, until one day, well, they didn't know what. Suddenly, he changed, became strange, started speaking and acting wildly, unkindly, even evilly. So in essence, he was banished from the town, sent up country, told not to show his face in Capernaum again. The children, of course, were fascinated by the legends of his evil doing, his possession. He was a classic childhood mythological figure. And now... He is right here in the synagogue. His beard flecked with spit and foam, and he is screaming at this unknown teacher. The whole congregation is frozen between them. But Jesus cut him short and spoke sharply. Hold your tongue. Get out of him. At this, the evil spirit convulsed the man, let out a loud scream, and left him. The man from the mountains collapsed to the synagogue's floor. His eyes rolled back, then back forward. All his muscles relaxed. His face changed. His hands ungripped from fists into normalcy. And that unknown teacher walked down the center aisle and knelt over the man and put his hands upon the man's shoulders. He spoke whispered words to the man and then sat on the floor beside him, explaining what it was that had happened. The congregation sat silent, watching. The children of Capernaum were transfixed. Everyone present was so astounded that people were saying to each other, what on earth has happened? This new teaching has authority behind it. Why? He even gives his orders to evil spirits, and they obey him. And his reputation spread like wildfire through the whole Galilean district.